Hey there, product lovers. Welcome to the Product Love Podcast, hosted by Eric Bodick, co-founder and chief evangelist of Pendo and super fan of all things product. Product Love is the place for real insights into the world of crafting products as Eric interviews founders, product leaders, venture capitalists, authors, and more. So let's dive in now with today's Product Love podcast. So welcome over to Product Today. I'm here with Brendan Stead, who's the Senior Vice President of Product Development and Engineering at Sound United. Brendan, why don't you give us a little background to kick us off? Sure, I'll start at the beginning. I was born in what's now called Zimbabwe. I was about fifth generation there. And interestingly, one of my grandfathers was a Finnish carpenter who built loudspeakers. I didn't know when I was a teenager that I'd end up in this business. We moved to the U.S. in high school, graduated from UC Santa Barbara with a degree in physics, and somehow found my way into an audio company, which you guys would know as Logitech or Ultimate Ears. Then I did a small stint, about 15 years at Harman. I left there to lead the Altec Lansing business. Ultimately, uh, we sold Altec Lansing technology to Denon Marantz, where I joined. And then we were acquired by Sound United uh, four years ago in February. So that's kind of how I got here. So talk to me about how you got into product management. So I started off uh, in hardcore engineering, but really enjoyed the process of defining how products were competitive. And I think the first thing I did was uh, some industrial design surveys where, you know, we had, yeah, I think, six different designs done by Ziba Design in Portland. And I took them to high schools and um, middle schools and colleges, and we did, you know, user surveys. And then I kind of fell in, in love with the whole idea of working with consumers to make stuff that they want. So that kind of started me in that direction. And then, you know, I would be very heavily involved in the product planning sessions, uh, and then ultimately became a, a product guy. And then at Harman, the product management team reported into me for the, the entire duration uh, that I was there. And that's been you know, a common theme through my career is having the product development piece, which is product management and engineering all within my team. So tell me about your time now at Sound United. You know, What current problems are you solving? What teams do you currently oversee there? So I'll start off with the, the team. So we have roughly 400 engineers around the globe and included when I say, I mean, product developers. So 400 product developers. So in there, we have product managers. We have all the UX things like uh, ID and UX and what have you. We have program management office, and then we have a bunch of hardware guys and a bunch of software guys. So we're roughly half and a half hardware and software now. You know, it's a new connected streaming world. Software becoming increasingly more important to our business. And like I said, these teams uh, span the globe. We also have a collection of some of the uh, finest acoustical engineering talent and electrical engineering talent as it relates to hi-fi audio. And so that's the, the group that we manage. For us, in audio, the key is to figure out where the school of fish is going, right? So if you think about it, Denon made 110 years ago gramophones. And, you know, it's a good thing they figured out how to make long play records and then cassette decks and CD players and et cetera, et cetera. And so for us, looking at future use patterns around how consumers will interact with our products is going to be critical for us to catch that next school of fish as it goes by. So trying to figure out who they are and how you know people age into our product categories because they're higher end. But there's some young folks like my kids, for example, will never have you know cable running through their house. So how are we going to get audio, video signals and then provide playback for them in the right way? So that's kind of a long-term thing that we're working on. In the short term, it's basically just getting all the streaming services integrated 
in the context of current Wi-Fi and Ethernet networks. Yeah, talk to me about how streaming's changed the industry as, as a product person. It's always been interesting watching the, the evolution of the music industry. As someone who grew up passionate about music and passionate about product, specifically software in my case, it's been interesting to watch how that industry has changed. Yeah, I just go through the last evolution. So we had the iPod docking thing, which was huge, right? So, you know, businesses went from zero to a million overnight. And then that petered out and was replaced by Bluetooth. And now Wi-Fi is taking over and Wi-Fi allows the products themselves to connect directly to services as opposed to having to go through another smart device. Uh, So that provides all kinds of interesting information and data on use patterns that is helpful for us to improve our products. Now, as we look forward, we anticipate that 5G will further impact streaming and making it more kind of ubiquitous, uh, not just in the context of your own network. Now, how do you see 5G impacting it? Well, some folks in urban areas don't have uh, Wi-Fi routers. They just have devices that connect directly to 5G. So the 5G network is their network. So that means wherever they go. They don't have to like create a new login or something to get access to their content. It's just it's there on the greater network. Interesting. And and now, you know, you talked about some of these moves, you know, as we get more and more bandwidth. Is that going to mean we're going to see more high fidelity services too? Like I'm a user of Tidal, right? I get the high fidelity music. Do you see that as a trend and direction where that becomes standard or, you know, is it not that important to an average consumer? I am very hopeful that we'll see higher fidelity. So, you know, 5G has so much bandwidth and audio, even in, you know, the higher bit rates and um, but depths uh, isn't really that big compared to some other files like video, for example. So I'm really bullish that that's going to be something that happens. And we as, you know, high-end performance companies, we resell $35,000 pairs of loudspeakers and $10,000 amps. You know, you can hear the difference and we want access to the content and today, it's quite difficult as a as a user to actually find really good high resolution content, and being able to have a music service come out where it's all guaranteed and being and certified would be really cool. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, we made the the jump into some nice speakers and a nice uh, amp system too. So finally, made that kind of leap, and and I had a tough time selling it to my wife because she was looking at the cabling, the size of the speakers, all that kind of stuff, and she was like aesthetically concerned about it, but then she heard the music and, you know, sat down for three hours and just, just loved what the output was. So I, I, I do hope we, uh, we keep improving the, the bar, so to speak, that we can get from, you know, streaming services. I'm, I'm curious, um, you know, you talked a little bit about your teams. What does it look like at your business as far as a ratio between product managers to engineers to designers to, you know, audio engineers? Yeah, so from a, a product perspective, so we, we the way we're structured right now is we have product planners that, w- that live within the brand and kind of set the overall direction. And then we have the product guys that are category experts, like there's a guy in charge of audio video receivers, for example, and he will provide services to all of the brands that need an audio video receiver. And then we also have regional kind of product managers that represent that region. So the number is pretty good. So we've probably got 20 or 30 people involved in the planning process out of the 400 or so that we have. And then in terms of UX, you know, we've got, we're pretty heavy there because we, in our UX, we have not only like the apps and the on-screen displays that we do for the TVs and that are rendered, but we also have to do a lot of technical spec writing to make everything work. So those are all a big part of that team. So probably got, you know, 15 to 20 folks in uh, UX and ID uh, working on that every day. Okay. You know, quite a few teams you're working through 
alignment? Is it a challenge? Uh, it is a challenge. So the reason that we have so many different teams is, is largely because we've grown not only organically, but through acquisition. So you may have seen we recently purchased Bowers and Wilkins. And so we're in the process of the post-merger integration there. So every time we bring in a new company, it requires you know new alignment and figuring out best practices and what have you. So the things that we rely on is we have a very good annual operating calendar where, where specific activities have to occur to support our business plans. And that's kind of done with everybody involved. So that's a unifying a cadence that keeps us together. Uh, and then we have a very detailed product development process. So once we've defined what to do, then we don't have any friction. That's just automatic. We call it the well-oiled machine. The parts where every business that I've been a part of struggles is going from a basic one-line concept to an actual product definition. And that's where we have the most amount of, of friction between folks. And a lot of that has to do with... Um, you know, opinions on how things look or how they should sound or what features should be determined. So ultimately, um, if there is, we tend to be a very collaborative culture and we um, we have a lot of consensus, but like anything, there's going to be five or 10% of things that there isn't full onboarded consensus. So then we agree to disagree. And then the guy that's approved to make the decision takes it and we support him. And so right now the brand leader, if it's an industrial design or CMF called material finish uh, issue, and we can't agree in the end, it's the brand president's uh, job to make those decisions. But obviously, you know, standing on the shoulders of the advice of the experts that he has in the business. Yeah. Yeah. Now you've talked about a lot of different product lines, right? I wanted to jump back into that because the, the business is diverse how do you manage and position the different product lines? How much effort goes into that? Because a lot of companies, especially in software and tech, they're often you know one product companies or maybe derivations of a single product. But you guys have a number of different products spread across you know different parts of the audio industry, but then also different price points too. So right. how do you guys think about that portfolio? Well, so I'll go. I'll just name the categories. So we have those. So audio video receivers, hi-fi. Uh, Hi-fi would be high-end amplifiers, turntables, et cetera. Uh, Then we have, obviously, loudspeakers. We call them component loudspeakers. Then we have uh, soundbars, headphones, Wi-Fi speakers, uh, Bluetooth speakers, and uh, mini systems. So mini systems are the, you remember, the old executive desktop systems from the past. Those are still very strong in Asia and Europe. So it's like a three-piece system with a CD player and a tuner and, you know, a pair of speakers. So those are the, the categories that we live in. And then... When we look at brands, we try to buy brands that operate at different price points than the ones that we currently own, right? So, for example, Bowers and Wilkins is very high-end loudspeakers, and nothing in the definitive technology or Polk really has brand rights to play in those price points. It'd be a lot of market development to kind of earn the right to be there. And, you know, if you can buy a company like Bowers and Wilkins, then it's easy to just get that. Now, what happens... And so that's in an acquisition mode. In an operating mode, you know, any good brand president's going to want everything, right? And so you know, life's about, there's a world of choices. And so a lot of times, you know, the brand presidents will want to go after the same fish, right? Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily the same school of fish, but the same exact fish, right? And then you need to find a, a way to, to broker that. So the brand presidents all report into this the COO, and it's his job to kind of manage the portfolio and keep the brands, you know, ask the right questions around where the brands are going and what, what right do they have to play where. And so it's ultimately his accountability 
and the brand uh, leaders are trying to maximize their own P&Ls, right? Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, you want, like, if I'm going out and looking for, you know, a, a new system uh, based upon, you know, my level of education, expertise, budget, you know, there should be just kind of probably a small number of brands to choose between, right? As opposed to this issue of too much choice where I don't know where to start, what to buy, where to go uh, because of brand overlap. So you you manage closely to that, trying to have, you know, relatively clear cut, you know, distinctions for consumers to understand where they would want to go between, you know, the different brand offerings. Is that accurate or am I reading into it too much? Well, we talk about that a lot and I, I don't think we've perfected it. And we, you know, we improve in that regard every year, but, you know, our view is to do fewer things that are bigger. That's kind of the direction that we want to drive. Got it. Now you, you were talking about where the fish are going. I'm kind of curious, right? We talked about 5G and, and the impact where 5G be, could become the Wi-Fi network in a lot of scenarios. You, and you talked about wanting to, you know, <laughs> to build product to where fish are going. Can you share some thoughts on where you think fish are going? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that there's three areas that generally drive change in the audio video business. So it's the content format itself. So I referred to that earlier with the gramophone and tape and CD. And so where's the content? What is the content format? So I think that Pyrez, as we touched on, is going to happen. And that's going to, you know, enable a bunch of uh, business. Uh, the other area that uh, where changes come from is how you control the products. So the first products we had, you know, you'd have to physically walk up, put it on the gramophone, drop the needle and, and wind it up and let it go, right? And then we've, we got buttons on the front where you could just hit play. And then we had a remote control. And then we had a Bluetooth remote control. And then we did the whole universal uh, remotes and then apps. And now we're kind of in the world of voice. And I think uh, in that area, some multimodal control is going to come into play. So voice is really good to talk to things where you know what they can do and what you want them to do. But, but voice is not really good for discovery. Uh, having lists or icons is way better for discovery. So, you know, being able to swipe through a display and see, a, you know, all the songs that you have in that library and then to say, you know, play this one and in the living room, kind of use both your hands and your voice. That's the, we think there's going to be some interesting control applications uh, there. And then the other one, has to do with uh, like the physical interfaces. The most recent new physical interface that we launched is HDMI 2.1. So that brings a lot of cool stuff, including 8K resolutions, but it's way more than just 8K. So that's a physical hardware change to put in a new transport. So if you buy an 8K TV, our AVRs are not ready to go with the interface so that you can get the content from the AVR to the TV. So that's uh, this you know, beyond 8K, we're talking about, you know, 16K in the future, the standards committees are coming. So the content will get even prettier and prettier. So that's kind of what we're seeing right now. Interesting. Now, let's jump back to your, your time at Harman. You know, you were VP of product engineering there. I'm, I'm curious how you see product versus engineering and whether in your industry in particular, you feel like product managers should have a, a technical background. So I think it's very helpful if they do, but not necessarily a requirement. So in one of our product guys actually came from our training department and he knows, you know, he's been out in the world training for years, how to sell our products versus the competition that he's just a freaking industry expert. And while he's an enthusiast, he doesn't necessarily have a technical background and he's a very effective product manager. And we have engineering leads by category as well. So the product manager has a lot of support. So the product manager themselves doesn't have to do a lot of technical work. 
they just basically work with the engineering leads to figure out if it's um, something that we can actually achieve or, or if it's a flying carpet. So what skills make a great product manager in your industry? And, and how do you test for that in interviews? Yeah, it's a good question. So I think uh, communication is probably the most important and also business acumen and being able to communicate to the decision makers within the company what investments need to be made, what does the ROI look like over what period, and what, what do you have to believe to believe it to be true, and basically convince management to make major investments in products. So that's, that, if you can't do that, you're never going to get anything off of the ground. So to be able to do that well, you have to be an expert in your, your markets and channels, and you need to have very clear, simple descriptions of why those channels and markets are going to actually buy the products and who the consumers are and what's driving their behavior. So being able to come up with a portfolio that has clear differentiation from the competition and our other internal brands and an identification of the consumer all tied to financial analysis that this is, hey, this is a great investment. How you interview for that, you know, you can ask someone to build a business case. That's pretty straightforward. You know, what, ask them what an NPV and ROI and IR and what the differences are in those financial ratios and get a sense of, you know, if they've lived in the financial world. And then with respect to um, a market, you know, if you know the market well, or you have a former product manager that has participated in that market, I would certainly encourage that person to be part of the interview panel to get an assessment of the depth of market knowledge of the uh, program manager. So let's talk a little bit about how COVID's expected things, right? You know, managing a global product team during COVID-19, you know, couldn't have been easy. I know we've gone, you know, I come from a company that's mostly, well, it's all software. So that in some ways is easier, but, you know, obviously you're not just software. There's a lot of hardware components that adds a huge amount of complexity. Talk to me about how you approached, you know, continuing the business, continuing to build products during COVID, what your strategy was. Sure. Well, you know, one of the advantages that we had was all of the multi-sites. I've got 16 different cities with engineering teams in them on every time zone on the planet. And so we work, we have essentially been working remotely for the last 10 years. So we're used to, you know, Zoom or Skype or Ring Central. This, you know, prior to COVID, I would be doing, you know, four or five of those video calls a day. So we were pretty well trained for using video. The hard part has been my inability to travel. So part of how I kept everyone together was I was on the road all the time and visiting all the sites or many sites as I could and having, you know, senior managers meet in certain locations to kind of keep the human connections together. So I think uh, one of the things we observed earlier on was that people handled COVID totally different. And it has to do with a number of things. Like, for example, for me, I'm used to working remotely because I'm always all over the world. I have a nice home with a private office so I can be quiet. I have a nice backyard where I can go kind of relax if I need to. And things are pretty good. At the other end of the extreme, we have folks that are in a two-bedroom apartment with a toddler. And, you know, it's very, very stressful for them. So what I'm referring to is not only do we have to run the business, but we have to work much harder assessing where people were at from like a mental health point of view. And then then coming up with a matrix of how we would would kind of restart our offices. So just at a high level, software folks, all they need is an internet connection and a PC, right? So they can work from home. A guy that's going to go use the anechoic chamber to measure the frequency response of the speaker has to be in the lab. In most cases, technicians or people who are actually building prototypes or assembling PCBs 
they needed lab space. So all the way through the breakdown, we came up with protocols and scheduling and appointments where people could go in and do specific evaluations or specific jobs at a hardware level. And then we kind of have the range uh, in between. You know, for us, we didn't really miss a beat in terms of getting our jobs done. But what we found is that when we did surveys of folks, you know, people were, you know, maybe stressed and frustrated. And I think what we observed is that the Zoom calls, the video calls are very transactional. And you miss out on that little snippets of time, like when you're forming a meeting and people are coming together and you're like, hey, dude, I haven't seen you in a while. You know, how's things going? How's your weekend? That kind of a deal. So those are like little chit-chatty human interfaces were completely gone because it's like slamming into one video call after the next. So we started to do like a daily water cooler. This was way in the beginning where we just get everyone on the phone so they could make it in the time zone and just chat, like no agenda, no, and which is very unusual for my team because we're so driven by agendas and processes. So by and large, I'd say that we've done okay. Uh, we've had some instances where we've had folks given them permission to work in the offices due to hardship. Like, uh, you know, if you've got a, a screaming a toddler and you're trying to have a conference call, we make uh, conference rooms available for folks, but we've been very careful with the following the local uh, legislation or rules or directions uh, in terms of how we handle safety. And I would say, I feel like as a company, we've done quite well in that regard, but it's getting to be the end. And I, um, I think it's not going to, it can't last forever. We need to get back in the offices and kind of back to the ways of working in the future. Yeah, no, I, I know I'm definitely desperate for some normalcy. You, you know, you talked about one thing that at the beginning of COVID, I don't, I don't, there's a lot of concern about getting people productive, getting them up and running in a remote environments. And you guys had, a, you know, a head start versus some other companies there. But I think, you know, something that people overlooked was just, you know, the mental health aspects, especially when, you know, work life gets completely blurred, you know, people are, are probably more productive, but at, at the same time, some of that productivity probably comes at expense to their mental health. And especially in those environments where you were talking about where, you know, small apartment, toddlers, what have you, right? There's special circumstances. What have you guys done to try to help out in that area? Have you done anything in particular? I mean, I, I do think that that water cooler idea is a great idea of keeping those connections going that that are informal, not necessarily agenda driven. Sure. Well, I was fortunate enough to attend a webinar like uh, two months into COVID. This company that we use to assess executive talent, they're out of Minneapolis and they're called MDA. And they had done some extensive surveys of mental health and they uh, had a report out in this webinar. And so that gave me a lot of a positive direction. So one of the things they observed is that People kind of in my demographic were okay with it because we went through SARS. I had team members get SARS when I was at Harmon. We've seen 9-11. You know, we've seen a lot of tragedies and seen the, you know, the country or the world economy take a hit. And then we get back on our feet. So this is kind of not our first GOAT rodeo. And we tend to have a little bit, as the older generations, a little bit more financial stability potentially and maybe a better space. The ones that survey said we're suffering the most with the young generations who've not experienced the global crisis, don't have a lot of financial stability, and there's the you know lack of hardening through going through multiple issues. So I, I kind of thought it would be the opposite, but it, you know I hadn't really paid it much attention. So we were very proactive talking to my leaders in the team and saying, we need to go find everybody that we think is in a bad state. And so we proactively went and looked for folks and it's kind of difficult to ask those questions, but we actually figured out some things. 
where we, I think we really improved folks' lives by letting them come to the office simply for a mental health reason if they were in a bad situation. Like one of our guys is still living at his parents' house, and, you know, he just needed to get out and get into the office. So we, we tried to do the personal thing. We also tried doing happy hours. And what we realized really quickly was a happy hour after work is just one more video conference. Like nobody wants to go. So that, that part didn't work out. And then as a senior leadership team, we from time to time gotten together like at the beach or something just to just to see each other. You know, we can sit out in the, the fresh air and be uh, far apart from each other. But I think that uh, when we're all said and done and uh, we take the time to think about it, someone should write a book on how to do it better. You know, because I think if we all get together and, and talk about what happened, I think there's there's ways that we could have done it better. And I think mental health is a big part of it. Like us, one of the observations that we made is that we were super efficient and we got our work done in the operational side. But in brainstorming and planning, we just sucked on this footprint. So that's the one thing we'd like to understand a little bit more about. Yeah, I, I can understand that. Which brings up, you know, an, an item I wanted to dig into, which is a little bit about product innovation. Like, how do you, in, in normal times, instill a, a drive for innovation in your group, in your companies? Yeah, so I always say good ideas can come from anywhere. And, you know, we're working on an innovation process where it makes it really pretty straightforward for anybody to provide us an idea. And ideas can come from our suppliers. They come from, you know, like our factories. You can see what they're doing. They come from technology partners like, you know, you know, Amazon or Intel or Broadcom or someone like that. Also, we can see out uh, into the industry and see what is going on in terms of the trends, like looking for where the fish are going. And from time to time, we will hire a consultant firm with fresh eyes to go and do a consumer insight survey to try to challenge, you know, what we're doing. So we do that pretty much annually. Uh, and then we have the actual experts who are in the category. So we are really, really good at incremental innovation. Uh, and so if you look at our market share and our core businesses like AVR, uh, every year we get incrementally better and we know how to do that. And, you know, we have a nice business there. What's harder for us is to find a new school of fish, right? Because that a lot of times your incumbent thinking gets in the way and you have that whole innovator's dilemma. I'm sure you've read the book. Uh, so those are the ones we struggle more with, but we tend to get a bit of outside help there to provide ideas. And then a lot of engine, a lot of great ideas come from the engineering guys, where they they say, you know, they just make something cool, and we go, "What do you guys think about this?" And some of our greatest products have come out through that route. Cool. The other thing I want to touch on is metrics. You know, from a product standpoint, what data, what metrics do your product managers keep an eye on? What are the important kind of north star metrics? You know, what are the supporting metrics? How do you look at data and metrics in your business? Uh, so we think uh, MPS is really the key metric that we track as a business by brand and by category. And, you know, that's net promoter score. Uh, mm -hmm. And then what we try to do is when we talk about our products is say, how do we pull in some of the ambivalent people into being like really supporters? And do we need to spend any money finding out what the detractors are saying? So, a lot, you know, we do a lot of keyword scrubs, not only in the NPS verbatim, but on the consumer online reviews like at Amazon or Crutchfield. And we can find out what's going on, how people are experiencing the products, and then feed that into the system to make things better. And that's all to drive the ultimate goal, which is to increase the earnings of the company. So the, the product manager needs to have a couple of different prisms, the, the, the facets in the prism that they look into. One is the consumer insights and what the consumer is talking about and what they want. On the other side, he's got to be a businessman because ultimately 
they're P&L owners and they need to drive you know, profit and loss. And then the third area that they look through is into the actual product development activities themselves, like to make sure that those are consistent with driving the NPS growth, achieving the financial goals of the business, uh, and then delivering them on time. And then with respect to the actual product development, the three things that they should care about is cost, schedule, and performance. All of those three on track. Were they communicated correctly, signed off, and do we know that those things are going well? Okay. Well, this has been a lot of fun. I wanted to turn this to a couple of questions about you. You know, what's your favorite product? Oh, my favorite product. That's a tough one. I think I'd probably say there's a couple of candidates. I think my favorite one's probably the JBL Creature. So this was a very uh, innovative industrial design that when I showed it to the Harmon board, they laughed at it. And ultimately, we ended up selling so many of them, it was ridiculous. So it was one of those totally radical ideas for old traditional audio company that I had to like burn down the walls to be able to get the right to ship it. And then ultimately it was a huge financial success. Yeah. If you, I, I was just reminding myself of what that looked like. So I was, I pulled it up on, on my computer as you were talking about it. And it, it was what I was thinking. It very, you know, unique look to it. Right. Yeah. It's a story for another time, but you can imagine me sitting across the table from Sidney Harmon, who was like 93 at the time and him going, this guy's crazy. <laughs> what, is, what is wrong with this guy? Were you nervous about bringing that product into that room? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You did it anyway. I did it anyway. Yeah. And I guess that's another aspect of uh, product planning is, you, you know, true innovation takes courage. You know, I, I can always get a sense of when I'm onto something, when the organization is all tingling and people are like, oh, it's cool, but I just don't know. You know? you know, those are the ones that can sometimes be breakthroughs. So that's a great product. So one final question for you today, three words to describe yourself. Uh, loyal, uh, creative, and committed. Great, Brendan. I had a lot of fun. This is a, a blast. I hope you had fun. I did. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for the opportunity and um, hope you uh, enjoy the rest of your day. You too.